And now introducing Mr. Keith Lanton. Good morning. Hope uh, all the moms had a uh, wonderful Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to uh, everybody who uh, celebrated uh, yesterday. Going to get started today, Monday, May 15th, halfway through the fifth month uh, of uh, 2023. And uh, this morning, as uh, is uh, been typical for quite some time, there's a lot to talk about. So uh, this morning on May 15th, uh, we are going to talk about what is happening in financial markets uh, at the present, what happened last week, um, and how that uh, feeds into the narrative of this week. Uh, going to spend uh, some time talking about uh, the debt ceiling and uh, the machinations of Congress and what implications that can have for the financial markets, talk about a little history, how we got here, and what the uh, debt ceiling uh, means to financial markets and what it may mean to uh, everybody's individual uh, portfolio and whether or not the debt ceiling should be anything that's uh, affecting the long-term thinking about uh, how we invest in financial markets. I'll uh, be speaking about uh, the news uh, this morning, some uh, mergers and acquisitions activity, and uh, and then we'll uh, go into uh, Barron's, uh, some articles that they wrote, perhaps uh, one talking about uh, the debt ceiling and how that's led to some negative sentiment and how negative sentiment, uh, once it becomes so pervasive, can turn into uh, a positive for financial markets. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, Elon Musk and the company that uh, has not gotten as much attention um, but perhaps uh, deserves uh, more, um, which is SpaceX. And uh, then we'll talk about a few individual uh, individual ideas. So last week um, on Friday, the University of Michigan came out with their uh, latest uh, sentiment survey. Um, many times that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention, but if you're following the financial narrative, uh, different uh, data points uh, garner more attention at different points in time. And uh, this uh, University of Michigan sentiment survey, I think, got a lot of attention. And uh, ironically, the bad news uh, was uh, was seen as uh, as good news as uh, often times, but not always happens in financial markets. And what this report did is it shed some light on the dour mood of consumers. The index plunged 5.8 points to 57.7 which was far below economists' uh, estimates and uh, below recent readings in the low 60s range. Uh, consumers' assessment of uh, current conditions fell by 3.7 points to 64.5, uh, but perhaps uh, even more importantly, the expectations for future conditions plunged by 7.1 points to 53.4. The university attributed the falloffs in part to the proliferation of negative news about the economy, including the uh, debt standoff uh, crisis. Now, consumers feeding into this number, uh, several different factors uh, that are uh, influencing this, in my opinion, uh, one of which I uh, just mentioned, which uh, we will go into a deeper dive on, and that's the debt crisis standoff. Um, but also, consumers have been faced with a uh, relentless rise in interest rates uh, driven by uh, Federal Reserve policy. Uh, also, uh, we are starting to see some uh, job layoffs, although the unemployment rate is hovering by historic lows, but nevertheless, uh, the flow of information in the news that we're hearing is uh, is of uh, perhaps uh, less job security out there. We are continuing to work through inflation, which, uh, despite the fact that it appears to be mitigating, um, is taking an increasing toll on uh, on workers as they uh, as they uh, you know buy the goods and services that uh, they that they consume for their families. 
um, it's just a it's just a slow grind eating away at uh, at the comfort level of uh, of investors. And we've also had uh, bank failures uh, taking place, uh, where we've seen uh, three large bank failures here in the U.S. We saw Credit Suisse get gobbled up. We've seen uh, the magnitude of the bank failures exceeding uh, the amount of deposits that uh, were um, in jeopardy in 2008 and 2009. So we can understand why uh, consumers may be getting concerned. At the same time, the positive news is that uh, the the employment uh, has held up. Unemployment rate is uh, 3.4%, the lowest since the 1960s. Um, and uh, this, uh, at the moment, uh, is not enough to uh, hold up consumer sentiment, but perhaps uh, enough to uh, hold up the economy as people continue to work. Now, the Biden administration is feeling the brunt of this lousy mood. You'd have to go back to the early 1950s and Harry Truman's second term to find a presidential approving approval rating that is as low as President Biden's with an unemployment rate as low as uh, 3.4%. And consumers perhaps uh, may uh, not be as optimistic about future rate cuts as uh, some on Wall Street are. Um, perhaps some of them know their history. If you go back and look at the uh, last 124 Fed funds rate reductions since 1971, only six of those took place when uh, the jobless rate was uh, below 4%. And two of those six occurred during the COVID crisis in March of 2020. And three of those happened in 2019 when inflation was running well below the Fed's 2% uh, target. The only other instance of a rate cut when, uh, when, we, uh, when we had a sub-4% joblessness rate uh, was in January, January 3rd of 2001. You may remember that time uh, when uh, the dot-com bubble was uh, in the midst of uh, bursting in the economy. Uh, was uh, well on its way to recession um, at that time when the uh, Federal Reserve cut interest rates. Um, so that uh, perhaps uh, could be uh, could be one of the reasons that consumers uh, are feeling uh, a little down. Now, of course, the uh, the big uh, news event uh, that uh, continues to weigh on all of us, whether we're worried or not, we're just constantly being. Uh, inundated with news, uh, whether it's on social media or traditional media, um, if you're following financial markets, if you're watching CNBC or Fox News um, or Bloomberg, you are constantly uh, being barraged with uh, reports that uh, we are approaching uh, the debt ceiling. Um, what does that mean? What is that? And, uh, and how did we get here? Well, the debt limit is a ceiling imposed by Congress on the amount of debt that the U.S. federal government can have outstanding. It's important to note that the debt limit is not forward-looking budgeting tool that reveals what policymakers think are ideal levels of spending and revenue. Rather, it reflects the spending and revenue decisions debated and enacted in prior years by Congress and uh, presidential administrations. In fact, over 90% of the current national debt stems from policy choices made before the Biden administration took office in January 2021. Now, these were choices made by both political parties uh, that were uh, in and out of power at various times. Um, and uh, these, uh, these uh, spending decisions were made in a bipartisan fashion, meaning that uh, they were voted on uh, in, uh, in Congress and uh, either approved or not. Uh, obviously, uh, each political party at different times may not have liked what was enacted, but that's the way our, uh, our political system works here. The debt limit is the amount that the U.S. Treasury can borrow to pay the bills that have become due based on these past prior decisions. The U.S. Treasury 
right now is taking what is known as extraordinary measures as uh, we have not raised the debt limit. What are extraordinary measures? Well, they are measures that uh, the government uh, is taking to temporarily reduce the amount of U.S. treasuries that are being issued. So these actions include suspending new investments or redeeming existing investments early uh, by reducing the amount of outstanding treasuries. The level of outstanding debt temporarily falls, slightly extending the amount of time that the government continued to satisfy its obligations. When the U.S. Treasury exhausts its cash and extraordinary measures, uh, uh, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has indicated that that may be sometime around June 1st. The federal government loses any means to pay its bills and fund its operations beyond its incoming revenues, which can only cover part is of what is required. Um, and that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80%. While the U.S. Treasury has hit the debt limit before, it has never run out of resources and failed to meet its uh, financial obligations. So, how did we get here? Why are we here? And what uh, can be done to, uh, to uh, alleviate the current crisis? Well, let's just take a look at where we are. Um, we are in a scenario where um, the Democrats or the, and the Biden administration are saying uh, that uh, the Congress, um, which includes the House, which is controlled uh, by the Republicans, albeit on a narrow basis, that they should uh, approve the spending that's uh, already taken place. Um, on the flip side, the Republicans, um, who hold a slim margin, as we just said, of the House, 222 Republicans to 213 Democrats, which means uh, that the uh, House, which also has to approve a raise in the uh, debt ceiling, um, would not be able to lose five votes um, in their uh, opposition to raising the debt ceiling. So... In order for all parties to come to an agreement, um, the Republicans are saying to the Democrats and to uh, President Biden, um, what we would like you to do is to be more mindful of uh, spending uh, going forward, even though what we're talking about is spending that's taken place in the past. Um, if, uh, if you want us to uh, approve uh, the past, uh, well, you've got to uh, play ball with us uh, on the future. And this is leading to a showdown as uh, the two sides clearly have uh, different agendas. And now this showdown is getting into a scenario of brinkmanship. And what do we mean by brinkmanship? Well, what we have here is uh, each side is seeking to uh, be able to use the uh, the media and uh, and and uh, the narrative to shift or focus blame. Um, and the feeling becomes if we can shift or focus blame uh, for this crisis onto the other party, we can win uh, political points uh, for uh, for uh, this uh, this crisis that we are all feeling. And uh, each side is seeking to spin the narrative in their favor. The Republicans are, to some extent, making a wager that uh, if the government is shut down, that they can spin the narrative that this is something that is the responsibility of the Democrats. And they feel that if there is uh, a, a shutdown, that uh, the country will tend to blame the administration that's in power, President Biden, and perhaps that might hurt his uh, reelection chances. Uh, the Democrats are taking the narrative that uh, we are uh, seeking to approve uh, funding for bills that have already been incurred, spending that you, Congress has already approved. And this is hostage-taking, and uh, the American people and the U.S. government must uh, pay its bills. So where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us uh, with uh, the prospect of, uh, one, working out a uh, compromise, 
Or two, what's uh, been recently discussed is something known as a clause in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says, and I quote, uh, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payments of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. And this uh, clause goes back to the 14th Amendment, which most uh, most of us associate with uh, the freeing of the slaves. Um, but uh, this amendment was written uh, right after the Civil War. And if you go back to the context of the 14th Amendment, why was this language uh, put into the 14th Amendment? It was because uh, the Union, which had won the Civil War, was concerned that the Confederates... Uh, that uh, if uh, the Union uh, was uh, put back together and uh, the Confederate states uh, were able to cobble together a uh, majority in uh, Congress, uh, that perhaps uh, they would not uh, be pleased with uh, paying for uh, some of the policies and uh, provisions that were put in place uh, to uh, put down uh, the, uh, the, the South in the Civil War and the uh, and the turmoil that took place and all the uh, deaths and things like that, uh, it wasn't hard to uh, to make the leap that uh, the Southerners uh, came to power, that they would not be happy uh, paying those bills. So specific language was put into the 14th Amendment saying that those bills uh, have to uh, be satisfied. And uh, some are suggesting that uh, if those bills have to be satisfied, um, then, uh, then, then these bills that uh, Congress has uh, rung up also would have to be satisfied, and therefore, uh, this uh, talk about uh, voting on, uh, on on raising the debt limit every year, which is thirty-one trillion dollars and counting, um, isn't necessary. That uh, the Fourteenth Amendment already says that uh, bills that are spent uh, and things that are passed by Congress have to be paid, um, and uh, it's very possible that if the Biden administration uh, were to seek uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, that it would make its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and they would have to interpret uh, this Fourteenth. Amendment, but the Biden administration and previous administrations uh, have been very hesitant to uh, invoke the Fourteenth Amendment, and they, you know, seek to uh, resolve uh, this uh, crisis uh, by other means. Now, why is that? Why, why would the uh, Biden administration uh, not say, "Hey, let's uh, just resolve this very easily"? In fact, the language, uh, some could argue, seems uh, to be possibly uh, in their favor in terms of. Uh, uh, not needing congressional approval because this has already been authorized by Congress as an amendment to the Constitution. And the reason perhaps that uh, previous administrations and the present administration does not want to go there, so to speak, is first off uh, that uh, this uh, may not uh, look great to the American people. The optics uh, of uh, breaking tradition is uh, something that uh, folks would not look favorably upon and might, uh, when they go to the polls, uh, not uh, look favorably upon the uh, Biden administration for having invoked it, even if they perhaps uh, have uh, have the uh, ability to invoke it. Uh, secondarily, perhaps equally important, is uh, while uh, the current administration may invoke this 14th Amendment um, and it winds its way through courts, it may take several months to make its way all the way to the Supreme Court and to the Supreme Court to issue a decision, and there would be a lot of uncertainty between that date and the date we got some final resolution. Uh, because in between those two periods, uh, the government would be uh, continuing in all likelihood uh, to issue debt. And if the government continues to issue debt and it is uncertain how 
the Supreme Court would ultimately rule, um, what interest rate the government would have to pay on that debt would be uh, would be something that some speculate could be very high, uh, because there would be uncertainty on whether or not that debt was uh, was permitted to be issued and whether or not it was valid debt and whether or not uh, when it comes due uh, there is an obligation to pay it. So uh, these factors uh, create. Uh, this uh, uncertainty about uh, about the positives of uh, invoking the 14th amendment to uh, to pay the debt but that doesn't mean the Biden administration won't go that route or use it as a negotiating tool um in fact this morning markets are up a little bit uh, on some hopes that perhaps there are some uh, rays of light that uh, perhaps the debt uh, ceiling uh, can be uh, satisfied uh, by traditional negotiation between uh, both political parties which is certainly the uh, hope for outcome now, to put in perspective uh, what would happen in the event uh, that the United States uh, were not to pay its bills, not to invoke the 14th Amendment, um, there are about $31 trillion, uh, $31.5 trillion of uh, treasuries outstanding. Um, it is uh, literally the oil that lubricates the U.S. economy and its engine. Um, put in perspective the size of the, uh, of the debt markets uh, here in the, in the United States. Um, the amount of debt that uh, is issued uh, for treasuries is over 60% of all the outstanding debt. So if you're going to buy uh, a bond or hold cash here in the United States, let's call it cash debt because cash is the debt of the United States of America, over 60% of uh, all of that debt that we trade here as America's debt, whether it's uh, corporate debt, municipal debt, or cash, is uh, is treasury security. So there's literally nowhere to hide um, if you want to seek to avoid uh, being exposed to uh, a U.S. government uh, uh, default, so to speak. Um, the specific numbers are we have about $31.5 trillion of Treasury debt outstanding. All of the states, all of the municipalities have a total of $4 trillion of debt. All of the companies that are uh, domesticated here in the United States, uh, U.S. Uh, corporate bonds, $10 trillion. The amount of cash in circulation, which are, uh, which are obligations of the U.S. government, a little over $2 trillion. So you add that all up, and you're looking at about $58 trillion of debt, $31.5 trillion of it is Treasury debt, um, literally nowhere to hide. Uh, one of the big concerns is the banking crisis, and one of the things that you frequently hear in a banking crisis is, well, as long as you have less than $250,000 uh, in your bank, what are you worried about? You've got FDIC insurance. Well, who do you think backs that FDIC insurance? That FDIC insurance is backed by the U.S. government. So um, you can have all sorts of uh, unintended uh, consequences. Uh, if you take the, uh, the oil out of a motor, you just don't know what's going to happen uh, when you do that. And uh, that's something that uh, should be avoided, in my opinion, uh, at all costs. And we will see if we're able to avoid that uh, very shortly uh, as uh, this uh, X date, as it's being called, um, when uh, when the Treasury uh, does not have enough money to uh, pay its bills uh, approaches. And uh, we will see if uh, at the 18th hour that there is a resolution. So this morning, here we are. Uh, stock futures uh, are off their best levels of the morning. Dow futures uh, were up about 130 points, now up about 50 points. S&P futures also about uh, up about half their highs of the morning, up about 7 points. And NASDAQ futures uh, are up about uh, 20 points. 
the futures having a positive uh, disposition this morning as M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions activity, has boosted sentiment due to uh, pleasing premiums, while concerns around the debt ceiling, as I just mentioned, have eased somewhat after reports suggesting that debt ceiling discussions have been productive. President Biden will meet with congressional leaders on the debt ceiling uh, tomorrow, and uh, Reuters is reporting he is optimistic a deal can be reached. Some conversation about the debt ceiling. Um, National Economic Council Director Lael Brainerd said the debt ceiling discussions have been productive. Treasury Secretary Yellen says both sides have found some areas of agreement, according to CBS News. Um, two Fed officials uh, speaking uh, on other matters say uh, that Fed policy is on track, but inflation remains too high. Uh, back to the debt ceiling, Treasury Secretary Yellen plans to provide an update on the debt ceiling X date. Just talked about that date, the date we run out of money, uh, within the next two weeks. Um, speaking about other matters, uh, the G7 leaders are meeting this week. Uh, they will uh, talk about uh, G7 uh, policy towards Russia, perhaps introduce some new sanctions on Russian energy, according to Reuters. Wall Street Journal reporting that the U.S. and its allies will increase pressure on China. Um, Turkey held an election uh, over uh, the weekend. Um, in order to uh, win the election, you need to get about you need to get over 50% of the vote. Uh, the incumbent uh, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan um, was expected to be in a super tight race. Uh, the race was very tight, but uh, initial accounts are that uh, he is doing better than anticipated, but is short of the 50%. Uh, vote needed, so a runoff may be uh, held on May 28th. Um, current reports indicate he's got about 49.5% of the vote, and uh, his uh, challenger about 44.5% with the uh, rest of the vote uh, among various other candidates. So if he's not able to get over that 50% mark, we will see a uh, a runoff election um, in Turkey. Important election uh, for uh, the United States and its Western allies, as the incumbent uh, was uh, leaning west, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan has uh, been a uh, uh, NATO ally, but uh, has not always uh, towed the line on NATO policy. This week, we get some key uh, insights into uh, the retail sector, uh, consumer spending. Um, retail sales come out tomorrow, looking for those to increase seven-tenths of one percent. Uh, excluding autos, expected to rise four-tenths of one percent. Um, we also get earnings reports and a commentary from Home Depot on Tuesday, um, from Target and TJ Maxx on Wednesday, and uh, from Walmart on Thursday. Um, also uh, on Wednesday, we get earnings from Cisco Systems. Also on Thursday, Alibaba with earnings. Thursday, Conference Board releasing the leading economic in indicators for April. Uh, economists expect it to drop once again. Um, the expected decline is one-half of 1%. The LEI, or the leading economic indicators, are at their lowest level since November of 20. Um, and uh, if we were to get a decline, it would be the 13th straight decline in the leading economic indicators, which are often viewed as a, a key recession indicator. Uh, Friday, uh, we get uh, earnings report from uh, Deere and Company. Now, with all these concerns about the debt ceiling and uh, all this negative sentiment, um, what this has caused is it has caused institutions and individual investor sentiment uh, to uh, plunge to uh, not record lows, but to uh, historically low levels. Um, and Barron says uh, everyone expects the stock market to tumble. 
What if it goes up instead? Uh, Baron saying it isn't time to get bullish yet, but darn, we're getting close. Uh, for now, the market appears to be holding its breath. Last week, the Dow slid 1.1%. The Nasdaq was up four-tenths of 1%, and the S&P was down three-tenths of 1%. Six straight week of moves in the S&P that were less than 1% in either direction. It's as if investors are waiting for something to break one way or the other. This article says, and it may, be, may break higher. Uh, consider last week's inflation data. On Tuesday, the April CPI showed its 10th straight month of decelerating inflation. That's the consumer price index. And on Wednesday, the producer price index, um, which is the equivalent of the CPI but for, uh, but for uh, uh, manufacturers, um, that number um, also uh, came in uh, very positive, a lower than anticipated inflation reading on the producer price index, and producer prices are now rising at their slowest pace since early 2021. That's not just the good news for the Federal Reserve, which is trying to wrestle prices lower, but for the stock market too. When the annual CPI rate has declined by at least five percentage points over the previous year, the S&P has put up a median return of 14.9% over the following 12 months, according to Bespoke Investment Group. Slowing inflation points to the possibility of a Fed pause coming at next month's Federal Open Market Committee meeting. Futures markets pricing implies a greater than 90% likelihood of the Fed holding the Fed funds rate steady in June at a target range of 5 to 5.25%. There's still time for that to change, especially with May's employment and inflation figures due before the meeting. Stocks have historically done well during a Fed pause, says Jonathan Golub, the chief strategist of Credit Suisse, who notes that the S&P 500 has returned 16.9% on average in the 12 months following the last interest rate hike of a cycle, while losing 1% on average in the year after the first rate cut. Uh, investors aren't positioned for a rally, a systematic trend following funds have been raising their equity exposure lately to slightly above neutral for the first time since 2021, but discretionary investors are heavily underweight the market. Equity's exposure is at its lowest level in a year and only at the ninth percentile historically. Many investors are waiting for the market to drop before putting cash back to work, but if it breaks higher, they may have to start buying. And move on to a uh, separate article, additional article in Barron's, uh, the cover story. Um, and uh, this is an article about Elon Musk. And uh, most of us uh, have uh, heard a lot about uh, Elon Musk's uh, two uh, big uh, headline uh, companies recently, that is Tesla and Twitter. Um, but amazingly, um, he has a third company that uh, he is the founder of, um, in this case, which is SpaceX which is the most valuable space company in the world. And it might offer Elon Musk, uh, Barron says, the key to unlocking his empire. Now, Elon Musk, uh, his empire includes SpaceX, Neuralink, the Boring Company, which uh, builds those tunnels, um, and Twitter, among his other investments. Um, the problem for Elon Musk recently has been, uh, despite the fact that uh, he has uh, lots of uh, equity in many of these uh, companies, um, all of them but Tesla are private and therefore illiquid. So when Elon Musk needs money, his only option is to sell his Tesla stock. And Barron says, and that's where SpaceX comes in. To call SpaceX wildly successful, Barron says, would be an understatement. SpaceX has, SpaceX has been sending astronauts to the International Space 
station and surrounding the Earth with its Starlink satellites and has even revived the U.S.'s moribund space program and restored it to the global launch dominance. Its businesses are starting to make money. Each launch could bring in from $150 million to $300 million in sales, and Starlink is sporting over 1 million subscribers as of the end of last year. An initial public offering isn't out of the question, and it might be just what Elon Musk and Tesla shareholders need. Don't let the recent explosion of SpaceX's Starship fool you. SpaceX is light years ahead of the competition, Barron's goes on to say. Right now, the focus is on its Starship launch system, the largest ever built, with more than double the payload capacity of NASA's SLS, which is Space Launch System, um, which is uh, NASA's uh, program to return U.S. astronauts to the moon. Starship is the first system designed to be fully reusable, moving beyond the current SpaceX system, where only the lower stage gets reused. Success would mean larger payloads and lower costs, making Starlink and other space-based businesses more competitive. Credit Suisse analyst goes on to say that they believe a successful orbital launch of SpaceX's Starship vehicle could be the most important event in the formation of the space economy since Sputnik was launched in 1957. The first integrated test with both halves of the unmanned spaceship uh, didn't go well. Um, You may have uh, read about uh, or seen uh, the big explosion or blow up, Um, but this is a strategy that SpaceX uh, has uh, been actively engaged in. Um, obviously, no one would like to see uh, any of their uh, launches uh, end in a blow-up. Um, but Elon Musk and SpaceX, uh, while not seeking failure, view failure as an opportunity to learn. They are not afraid to fail, and they are not afraid to uh, analyze their failure and uh, use it as a learning expedition. And they have successfully done that over and over again. SpaceX has spent $10 billion, and uh, they have launched a constellation of roughly 4,000 satellites in the last 20 years, uh, reusable spacecraft, reusable rockets, and they have their own launch complex in Boca Chica, uh, Texas. Over the same time period, NASA has spent not $10 billion, but $20 billion developing that SLS system that we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, But in that time period, they have had just one launch since starting development. SpaceX has had 22 launches. Uh, Again, NASA spent $20 billion for one launch. SpaceX spent $10 billion for 61 launches. And if you're thinking about the competition, well, the upstarts are having a lot of trouble. Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit Holdings, a satellite launch company, filed for bankruptcy last month. Uh, Shares of Virgin Galactic Holdings, symbol SPCE. Uh, has tumbled 92% since peaking in February of 21. And companies such as Momentus, MNTS, Astrospace, ASTR, and Spire Global, uh, SPIR, um, which came public via SPACs or special acquisition companies in 2021, well, they all trade for less than $1 per share. And even Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, which was founded in 2000, has not conducted an orbital flight. Uh, just to put in perspective just how vastly successful SpaceX uh, has been. And it's not only about launches. Uh, Starlink, SpaceX's based Wi-Fi business, has thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth, providing high-speed Internet service for about $110 per month. The scale and growth of Starlink 
uh, have the business on pace to generate sales of about $1.8 billion this year, which is almost double of the number from last year. Of all of Musk's privately held business, Starlink is the one that looks most likely and ready to stand on its own. Musk said as much himself in 2021 when he said he might take Starlink public when cash flows become more predictable, um, which is starting to happen now. Whether Musk should IPO Starlink comes down to how much it would fetch from investors. Um, right now, the private market in SpaceX uh, is uh, relatively quiet and calm because of the uh, turbulence in financial markets. Um, but the last time SpaceX in aggregate, not just Starlink, was valued, it was valued at $137 billion. So Musk has two options if he wants to go forward. He could uh, IPO a piece of SpaceX, which is the Starlink satellite uh, company, which is operational, um, which is uh, which is what uh, is uh, enabling uh, for example, uh, uh, the Ukrainians to uh, continue to have uh, communications uh, within their country, even as uh, Russia has uh, developed a lot, uh, has destroyed a lot of the uh, ground-based uh, communication systems. Um, so they could take that Starlink system public, or he could take all of uh, SpaceX public, and this would give Elon Musk a uh, additional currency um, instead of uh, just his Tesla stock, as he seeks to uh, do more things uh, with his uh, with his money. Finally, before I conclude, again, Brad won't be joining us on the call, going to uh, talk about one last uh, article in Barron's, and uh, and then we'll open up to questions, thoughts, and comments. Uh, this is an article in the Traders section talking about healthcare stocks and two specific stocks uh, in the healthcare space. Uh, Barron's saying, for investors torn between buying stocks and waiting for a pullback, we offer you healthcare stocks. Nearly pure, neither purely defensive nor purely growth, they offer among the best of both and perhaps a way out of uh, the conundrum. The defensiveness was on full display last year when the healthcare sector spider ETF exchange traded fund lost just 2.1%, uh, trouncing the S&P 518% loss. And there's a good reason for that. No matter what's going on in the economy, people still need to take their medications and visit the doctor. Revenues and earnings tend to be significantly less volatile than the broader market. Uh, that strength, though, hasn't continued this year. Technology and telecommunication services have led, and healthcare stocks have fallen uh, 2.3%. Yet there's real growth to be had out there, too. Um, in fact, healthcare has averaged 12% earnings growth a year since the mid-1980s, the fastest of any sector um, ahead of even tech. That growth has been driven by an aging population in the U.S. and other developed countries, richer consumers in emerging markets, and new forms of treatments for once untreatable disorders. So where to look in healthcare? Um, Barron's talked to Kevin Walkush, a portfolio manager at the Jensen Quality Growth Fund, a $10 billion fund, and he likes several companies uh, in this uh, defensive sector. Um, two, he mentions uh, in this article, uh, Stryker, symbol uh, SYK, Sam Yankee King, which is the leader in hip and knee replacement surgeries. It's a $108 billion market capitalization company. They also sell beds and other equipment for hospitals, um, which is, he says, more of a near-term driver for growth. It's also an early mover in robotic surgeries uh, for joint replacements. He sees a tailwind for more complex procedures taking place in emerging markets and aging populations wearing down their joints in developed countries. Second, he mentions Pfizer, symbol Paul Frank Eddy, 
Um, this was a uh, Barron's pick earlier this year. Uh, this uh, company knocked it out of the park during the COVID-19 pandemic, developing and commercializing its vaccine with partner BioNTech in record time. Uh, uh, Walkush goes on to say the same approach can be applied to future drug and vaccine development, speeding up innovation. COVID-19 vaccine was a massive cash cow for Pfizer. Revenue in 2021 and 2022 was double the previous two years as free cash flow nearly tripled. Rather than paying a special dividend of buying back more stock, management has gone on an acquisition spree to reload the company's drug development pipeline. Pfizer has signed eight deals since the start of 2021 with companies involved in treatments for neurological diseases and sickle cell disease, a DNA testing firm, and most recently the $41 billion acquisition of CGen, which is working on cancer therapy. Uh, despite all this uh, potential opportunity, Pfizer's valuation isn't demanding. It trades for 11 times 12-month forward earnings around the average over the past half decade, and that compares with 18 times for the S&P 500. I'm going to wrap it up. I will say I see uh, breaking uh, news that uh, Turkey will be holding um, a runoff, which uh, is unprecedented. It hasn't happened before. Uh, the election board in Turkey confirms that this runoff will take place and will be on May 28th. That's everything I've got. Thank you for listening to Mr. Keith Lantham. This podcast is available on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora. For more information, please visit our website at www.heraldlantern.com. Opinions expressed herein are subject to change and not necessarily the opinion of the firm. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The information presented herein is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. It is important that you consider your tolerance for risk and investment goals when making investment decisions. Investing in securities does involve risk and the potential of losing money. The material does not constitute research, investment advice, or trade recommendations.